0: In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Lawrence Yap. And for those of you who don't know Lawrence, he's one of the most interesting characters in the Canadian automotive industry. I knew him for many years ago when he was a columnist, of the wheel section at the Toronto star and always admired his writing. I really liked his approach to cars. And the next time I ran into him was when he was marketing director for Porsche Canada. And since then he's been with RM auctions and now at FAF automotive partners as their marketing director. With that being only a few of the many things he's done in the industry, I encourage you to check out this part one of the Lawrence Yap episode. The episode ranges from stories of the Carrera GT Press launch with Walter Roll, Hurley Haywood, Rick By, and Tony Morris Sr. to Lawrence's role in Urban Outlaw and how it inspired him to get into his own 9-11. And we even get to the Trans-Siberian Rally. Honestly, I was hanging on to every word of this one. So as usual, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I'm your host, Trevor Byrne, and this is the Bucket Seat Podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah,
1: Um, So
0: we're going to kick it off. Okay. um, And so um, this is uh, episode 23 of the Bucket Seat Podcast. Uh, It's my pleasure to have Lawrence Yap here on the show uh, tonight. It's been a long time coming, and I'm super happy to have you here. So thank you so much for coming, Lawrence. Thank you for having me. All of us who are interested in cars, I think, have come across his name in many different facets. Um, And Lawrence, so he's a a very successful marketer, uh, is currently the marketing director at FAF um, Auto Group or Auto Partners. Mm. Um, He's also a writer, absolute car nut, even an IT guy in a past life. Um, And from what I've researched... Here's the laundry list uh, that Lawrence has held in terms of roles um, in the industry. So I'll go through these quickly, but creative director at Driven Magazine, Mm -hmm. uh, director uh, of the Automotive Journalists Association of Canada, director of Canadian Car of the Year with AJAC, Automotive Mm -hmm. Journalists Association of Canada. Columnist at the uh, the Wheels section of the Toronto Star, and that was about 11 years. That was, uh, yeah, something like that, 10 10 or 11 years. It's a good stint, Um, and that is most definitely where I was introduced to you, and I'll get to that in a minute. But um, creative director at Sharp Magazine, um, fine car columnist. Watch Time magazine. I know that's another one of your passions. Absolutely. So watches.
1: Shiny metal things.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, and very finely crafted precision instruments. Yeah. Um, I think that conveys very nicely into the brands that you represent as well from an automotive perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, manager, Public Relations, Porsche Canada, Director of Marketing at Porsche Canada. Mm-hmm and senior director of marketing at RM Auctions which is very clearly pretty legendary i mean an interesting organization here in Canada great success story in mm-hmm. Canada and now uh, as i said before director of marketing
1: at Faf Automotive Partners PR and content strategist yeah. uh, with which FAF. was basically a, a circumstance of we want to hire this guy we're not gonna, we're not sure what we want to do with him yet but
0: <laughs> but we have we have big plans yeah um, okay. So, um, so I have to admit that I've always been really fond of your work. Um, and it's, I, nice, it's
1: nice to hear that somebody was actually paying attention. <laughs> there,
0: I, I think you might <laughs> underestimate the impact that you've had on a lot of us in the automotive industry. And I say this not in, in isolation. I say this, having spoken to a few people about this, um, most recently, um, especially, that, Some of the work that you've done and some of the influence that you've had, some of the words that you've spoken and written have really had a a pretty big impact on people here in Canada and outside of Canada, I know as well. But Mm -hmm. in particular for me and a a very interesting group of people that followed what you did and what you wrote Mm -hmm. about automotive, because I think we all related to your sensibilities your understanding of the automotive business and the way that you were able to tell stories about cars um, yeah. that I think connected really, really closely with all of us innately. Um, and so with that, I mean, I, I don't think it's creepy for me to say that I'd followed a lot of your work because mm-hmm. you were quite the public figure mm-hmm. uh, and you are still today, but not as much as you were when you were uh, a columnist with um, the wheel section for the Toronto Star. When I mean, you're putting yourself out there week after week after week after week, mm-hmm. uh, your opinion Uh, and everything that you were doing um, as a part of um, kind of this public role as an automotive
1: journalist. I I was really lucky, actually, because the editor that originally hired me to start writing for the wheel section, I I have a degree in writing fiction. That's right, yeah. Um, And I was really lucky that uh, John Turow, who was editing the wheel section at the time, you know, really... He was. He brought me on on board at the wheel section. He brought a couple of women on board at the wheel section. He really kind of transformed it from this, you know, nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties kind of league of middle aged white guys into something really really diverse. And I was lucky to kind of have been a part of that. But John's business outside of working at the Toronto Star was actually as a publisher of fiction. And so we connected kind of on that level, that we both love telling stories. And I, as much as I love cars, I like telling stories about them, you know, (laughs) almost more than I like the cars themselves, right? Right. So it was always about the words as much as it was about the cars. And the cars were a way into telling interesting stories and meeting really, really interesting people in the industry covering it,
0: right? That's And that's the... I think that's the beautiful part of this is that, uh, and I mean, I am—I have to admit—I clearly in the infancy of doing this with my podcast and meeting more and more people that are as enthusiastic, if not more enthusiastic, about cars than mm-hmm. I am. And over your your years of, I mean, ten plus a decade plus um, mm-hmm. of of meeting people who were enthusiastic about cars, love cars, and made this part of their career. I mean, you must have gone through through some. Uh, No, sorry. I know that you've gone through some pretty crazy things. And I mean, for me, there's something that's so iconic. It's so funny that um, over all of these years to get to this point of having you here on this podcast and speaking with me, um, the most iconic image that's conjured in my head when I think of Lawrence Yap is this cover page on the wheels section of you in a Carrera GT. Oh, yeah. Looking up, and it was a, it was a massive, massive photo, yeah. um, and the, and the 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 vantage point was almost directly from above, yeah. and I remember the the look on your face was this just kind of expression of pure elation um, in that car, which I mean, I feel like it would be hard for someone not to feel so. Uh, joyful in a machine like that. But that must have been a pretty interesting moment. And for me, that was really iconic in terms of like, that who is who Lawrence Yap is, and this is one of the things that he does.
1: That was an interesting day because I had Walter Rural as my driving instructor. Come on. At Mosport. No way. Uh, he did the uh, North American press launch of the Career GT at Mosport because it was one of the tracks that, you know, could actually... Where you could actually stretch its legs, mm-hmm. and so we go out with Walter, uh, and he's he's driving us around first. And the, the instructors that day were Walter Hurley Haywood, <laughs> Hurley uh, Haywood, yeah, are you serious? Yeah, Rick By, who's a local guy who would be a great interview for your podcast as well, and a guy who sadly actually passed away uh, last year named Tony Morris Jr., who's who's uh, sorry Tony Morris Senior. His son, uh, you know, is a pretty active instructor and racer himself. But, you know, we (laughs) go out with Walter, and he's like, "Ah, I haven't, you know, driven here in like 20 years, so I'm just going to kind of give it a go. (laughs) And uh, they'd set up this little chicane on the back straight, and he just blows right past (laughs) it. It's like, oh, my God, this is like the fastest I've ever been in my life. And then they're like, okay, now it's your turn. Um, And I was just happy not to have stalled it. You know, and and, yeah, which I've heard is is pretty easy
0: to do in that car. Yeah.
1: You know, I think once you kind of get over it and you you understand that you really just don't need to give it that much throttle to get it rolling. You it it uh, it comes together pretty easily. But but yeah, that was kind of the thing is that you go into this. like, Oh, it's got this ceramic clutch that this that's this big and it's really, really hard to drive. And it's you're going to stall it. You're going to stall it. And that was kind of the thing. It's like, okay, I didn't stall it. And I didn't crash it. So <laughs> okay, nice. good points to check off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, but yeah, that was a that was a pretty memorable day. God, that's yeah.
0: wild. Yeah. So you had an entire day at Mosport
1: in yeah. the in the Career GT? Yeah, industry. there was a there were a number of journalists there and they brought two career GTs up. They had press cars, right? They had press cars that they to people to drive. It, it, and that was always the thing about Porsche to me was, you know, when I was an automotive journalist. You know, typically what happens is the manufacturers will lend you a car for a week to write a review. You know, if it's not something that they're launching, you know, if they're launching it, you're just economies of scale and then availability of cars and stuff, you're mm-hmm. probably flying somewhere to drive it at some event. But, right.
0: Yeah. You end up in Spain or you end up in yeah. you know, California and on yeah, Angela's crest. Exactly. <laughs> driving yeah driving the new Miata.
1: Yeah. Uh, But what happens is, you know, back home, you get a car for a week to write a review about what it's like to live with and all of these things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, pretty much all the manufacturers will do this. But most manufacturers do this thing of like, oh, you know, it's, this is like the really fast, expensive one. We're going to make you sign extra waivers. We're going to put restrictions on you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You can't put any more than this number of kilometers on it da, 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 you know yeah. porsche would always be like yeah hey, here's the keys you know and whether it was a base boxster or a 911 turbo the, their attitude was just like we're pretty happy with this car and we think that you will be too and it showed a huge amount of confidence for them to hand over the keys and say fill your boots Bring it back, go clean, it. and don't crash it, and whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that really stuck with me because I was like, okay, I, I liked them already, but then you sort of go, they're just going to let you drive this. Like, this is a real car. It's not, you know, it's fast, and it's capable and all of these other things, but it's not temperamental, and it's a real car. You can drive around in it and run your errands in it. And so that was always the attraction for me. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. no, I mean, it, it's... Um I I, there are manufacturers that clearly um, have very different experiences when they allow journalists to um, to get behind the wheel and I mean selfishly I know and I always say it overtly here with my affiliation to Subaru Mm -hmm. it's not just for me you know as the Subaru brand as being you know something that I'm I have a relationship to in terms of my work life but it's also in my personal life and one that I really hold near and dear to me long before I ever worked for for. Uh, an organization that represented Subaru but Subaru does an amazing job too of putting the keys in hands of people that are able to drive these cars and drive them for what they are
1: I remember being in California and driving the STI when I when they launched it and making myself sick behind the wheel no
0: kidding really
1: yeah because they let us loose in these canyon roads and and you know you get the kind of if you have like some overcast and you're kind of going from light into dark and light into dark. Like, Oh, <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta stop. So yeah, I have some pretty vivid memories of getting sick in Subarus in my, in my, in my past. And, but they're great memories because the they, cars were so amazing.
0: And they, they certainly are, um, capable, especially when mm-hmm. you put them out on a Canyon road too. Yeah. It's not like we have a lot of those to be able to experience here in Canada, but, um, I'm glad you're able to do that while you were in California. Yeah. Um, so I have, a, I have a, a good list of things that I want to talk about here. Um, one of them, though, before we get into it, was kind of a last-minute thought that I had thrown into my notes here before you'd arrived. And it was one that I think really stood out in a previous podcast. So I'd had Tamir Moskovich on the show, and we talked about um, a lot. And two of the topics really were his car, um, yeah. And his build, uh, sorry, his cars, I should say, um, his 911, but also his 914. And then really something that um, is super close to me, uh, as for anyone who's listened as well, you'll understand the connection. But why Urban Outlaw and his connection with Magnus Walker was so important to me, mm-hmm. uh, to my kind of um I guess it was like spurring on my enthusiasm for automotive. Um, It really helped to do that. But it also was really influential in um, both the naming of my son and kind of the uh, progression that I've led in telling stories about automotive and staying so passionate about what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, You had a role in that. A little bit. uh, And and Tamir
1: has a bit of a role in my love of old 911s too. So I owe him a certain... I, I have him to blame for the lack of funds in my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> but, I love uh, that. I love it. That's a good thing, though. Yeah. No, it's thing, awesome. Yeah. Like, yeah. a, you know.
0: Um, and so, you were in a role at Porsche Canada yeah. uh, that uh, when Tamir and Magnus and Paul Prue all kind of were together making this film and um, they were... Strategizing how they would release this film. Yeah. Um, You became kind of one of the pivotal people that helped them to both associate with and associate with legitimately Mm -hmm. um, the Porsche brand. And you helped them to um, kind of make a connection with both Porsche in Canada, in Germany, and in America to, um, from what I understand, uh, legitimize what they were doing. And the story that they were telling, um, but more importantly, help them to promote and launch what this film was all about. And not necessarily under the Porsche nameplate or the no. brand, but as a bit of a nod in the, you guys are doing the right thing. Yeah, this is a great film. We like what Magnus is doing. He's not necessarily the Porsche ambassador at that time, right. which has changed a bit.
1: It's it is kind of an interesting story because when when Tamir came to me and, and showed this showed showed us uh, kind of this rough cut of his film, I was like, oh, and there were enough old Porsche enthusiasts at Porsche Canada that I said, you know what? Why don't you come down to the office and we'll put it up on on the screen in the boardroom and just yeah. let people enjoy it. Uh, and so we did that, and and you know this was at the time when he was trying to figure out what to do with it. So I took a DVD with me to Germany because I was going to, there for a meeting. And I showed it to a couple of people there. And they're like, well, you know, this guy is, Magnus is kind of modifying cars and we're, you know, officially not okay with that. But he's really cool. and um, And he certainly
0: isn't the... Uh, the image that you would conjure in your head of the typical
1: Porsche no. enthusiast either, which no. I love, I
0: absolutely love.
1: I, I would contend now that I don't actually work at Porsche, but I still work at a, uh, a company that represents it and, and is very mm. passionate about it. That One of the reasons that Porsche is so strong as a brand is that there is a really lively aftermarket that has come up around it. So, you know, uh, my, the guys in Germany weren't really... Interested in releasing the film under the Porsche banner, but they said you know what like that's cool Like we're okay with this and this guy's an interesting guy So I said to, I said to Tamir like just put it out there, right and You know several months later um, We were going to do a dealer meeting in Los Angeles uh, Around the auto show and my boss at the time, Joe Lawrence, who is now executive vice president and COO of the U.S. operation. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. Um, we're kicking around ideas how to make this cool because normally you do these dealer meetings and they're like, you know, in a hotel and it's two days of PowerPoint. And uh, we were looking to do something fun. And Joe is kind of into old cars as well. He loves old Audi Quattros. He just bought a 968 uh oh, and nice. and he he said why don't we bring the dealers to Magnus's garage I said well that's interesting so I called Tamir Tamir introduced me to Magnus Magnus said sure we'd love to have you down nobody from Porsche ever has, has come through here before you know and so you know there there were a couple of my colleagues at AG that were like "We're mm, a little nervous about this but mm-hmm. But we do it anyway. We have the we have a reception and dinner at Magnus's garage. People start showing up through the evening. All these executives and and uh, you know the people that were sort of raising their eyebrows and they're coming to check it out. And I'm like, oh, okay. Am I going to get fired here? Or (laughs) but uh, but yeah, it's uh, like we were kind of the first group. This bunch of Canadian dealers that actually had. Visited Magnus Walker at his garage.
0: Ah, that's so cool. And oh then, God, you know, I mean, it looks like an epic place. Jeff
1: Zwart was there that night. Uh, Camilo cow. Pardo is a friend of Magnus's. He was there that night. There are all these, like, people showing up, and it was amazing.
0: Sorry, uh, sorry Jeff Zwart, is that Sharkworks?
1: Uh, no, Jeff Zwart is the photographer. Now,
0: why am I thinking why? Yeah.
1: Right. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. yeah.
0: Completely. Completely botched that. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Okay. Yeah. He's the
1: photographer. He's got that old three fifty six that he drives in the winter. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so we you know I was a little bit nervous, but you know it sort of became clear through the night. Like man, everybody thinks this is pretty cool, mm-hmm. and you know lo and behold, a couple of years later, you know they've sort of welcomed him, and I, it's so cool to see because. You know, one of the neat things about Porsche is that, you know, we have a Harley-Davidson dealership as well at FAF, and it's like, it just inspires this passion, and part of it is this kind of grittiness to the brand. Yes, they're expensive. Yes, they're high-end, but people rally them, and people race them, and they get their hands dirty, and they get they get their cars dirty, and that's kind of what makes them cool. And they're right? absolutely so,
0: not afraid to do that. Either, that's right. Which is amazing. Yeah. Um so I urge everyone to listen to the uh, Tamir Moscovich episode part one and part two to kind of get the backstory on what it was with uh, both Urban Outlaw and the builds that he's done because I think they're really interesting and he does have um, quite a nice ode to Lawrence in that uh, in terms of his role in making this all happen as well because I think a lot of the, the successes that... Um, that Magnus has seen have really come from that film. And there are a lot of people who play a big role in that success. And um, Lawrence, I think that, um, you know, you certainly have a name on that. And, um, you know, I, I, I thank you on behalf of, I think, everybody who's listening, because that has been a film that I think you can constantly go back to and look at as both an inspiration for those who like to build and for those who are passionate and, and uh, enthusiastic about cars.
1: Well, and it was you know it was only after I mean you know literally I came down to see this rough cut downtown Toronto with Tamir and Paul and I walked out of there. I'm like mm, I gotta get an old 911. <laughs> So it worked on you too. Yeah. Oh, it totally did. You know, up until then, I mean, I always, I I spent over a decade reviewing new cars and it was always about what's the, what's the newest, coolest thing. And I always Mm -hmm. sort of had a respect for older cars and Mm -hmm. a respect for brands with history. But it was after seeing Urban Outlaw that I went, oh, like this is really, really cool. And then I went and, you know, it took me two and a half years after that to find a car that I actually wanted to buy but, you know, like it's it's just totally become this addiction, right? And, you know, I bought an old 911 thinking, oh, I'll get this out of my system and I'll have it for a couple of years. And it's cool, I'm working at Porsche and people will <laughs> think I'm cool because I have an old 911 and there's this yeah. group of people, you know, at head office don't that have old nine eleven, and, and it's really, really cool. And then you you sort of, I, I've had the car for like four years now and you're just like, hmm yeah like there's nothing else that quite drives the same or feels the same or smells the same or smells the same. yeah, especially <laughs> yeah, especially smells the same so, right. Yeah. right.
0: No, there, uh, it is it's I mean it's this onslaught of sensory, you know exposure that you get when mm-hmm. you're in these old cars. and I I mean I'm certainly there. I, I I mean my cars were certainly not that old when I had my project cars in. Uh, for those listening they're probably bored at me uh yammering on about the fact that i had you know my first two real cars that i had both built and driven for a long period of time were like a 93 eg civic hatchback Mm -hmm. but completely stripped completely rebuilt um and made into what i wanted to which was a super lightweight go-kart with 130 horsepower 115 130 horsepower um and at the at the time eagle f1 gs d3 or d3 gs wheels with a crazy tread pattern and all kinds of uh you know lightweight components loved it but they had a very sorry i say they i also had a 91
1: 240sx Mm -hmm. completely restored cars from the early 90s were just amazing because they were on the cusp of having the technology that will keep you safe and uh they all ran really well. You didn't need to fuss with them. You turn the key, they start. But they still had all of the character and all of the kind of analogness of cars from before. So, you know, my favorite cars basically of all time are from the early 90s, right? Um, you know, things like the original NSX. Ah, uh, oh, yes. You know, um the nine six four nine eleven is still my favorite, even though I have a nine nine three. You went. Yeah. You were looking originally I was like for looking a 964 for a nine six four originally, right? Um, and almost bought like three different 964s. six um, fours. You know, uh, you know any of the Japanese performance cars from that era, uh, the three hundred ZX twin turbo. Right. Uh, I had a nineteen ninety Miata. Uh, oh, you did? That yeah is- that that was my first car. Um, so I just love, you know, kind of anything from that era, like Corrado's and 944's just, just like, right. There's so many cool cars.
0: Ah, the Corrado. Yeah. I, had,
1: I have a very good friend who had an awesome,
0: awesome Corrado. Right. Um, and it was one of those cars that I always look back on so fondly, but mm-hmm. anyways, I, as I digress, I, we're going to get into, <laughs> we're going to be digressing of, a lot, a couple think. of the questions that I have. Um, so in terms of where you are now with mm-hmm. Faf, um, and I mean, I think it's very relevant to our Porsche discussions sure. we're both having because yeah. you guys have a really amazing, um, I mean, you have the the very standard, very sought after, um, you know, inventory of new Porsches yes. that everyone's looking for from, you know, uh, Cayman to 911
1: to Boxster uh, in all the different variants to the four door stuff, which now represents something like seventy percent of, I was, I was of what say, all of us, are something to the right? to the
0: Panamera that yeah. I have that has grown on me from day one as being not a car that I never that sorry not a car that I ever loved mm-hmm. to now a car that I just absolutely yeah. would love Amazing. love love to have yeah. um, to Cayenne to Macan, mm-hmm. um, but also on the other side of that um, an incredibly. Um, incredibly attractive, uh, inventory of used Porsches as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm always, I'm always on the FAF site looking at what's in the used inventory because yeah. I find that some of the best examples of all of the generations from be it nine, six, four and nine, nine threes. Um, some of the 997s, like, you know, there are such nice vehicles and you guys mm-hmm. obviously have a very particular eye to knowing what it is that most of your customers would like. Um, so, in terms of what you're up to, that's obviously just on the Porsche side and we'll move yeah. into further what it is. But um, on the Porsche side, um, I know that isn't where you started, but that is definitely where I mean, for me, I came into the family, yeah. um, at least as an admirer and outside admirer. Um, is that what you would say what is one of the core tenets of your business or is that yeah. just, you know, is that um, is that kind of legacy?
1: It's, you know, I mean, FAF started as a Volkswagen dealer in 1964, but they acquired the Porsche franchise in 67. Gotcha. So it's 2017 now. We've we've been at it for 50 years. Uh Selling them, racing them, probably for almost as long. That's right. You uh,
0: heavily, heavily active. Yeah. In the in the Porsche racing. Seat.
1: Yeah. You know, this year we're th- I think we're going to have five GT3 Cup cars in the field of of twenty. God, that's amazing. Um, is that
0: in ALMS? No, no.
1: This is in uh, the Canadian series. Oh, sorry, the yeah. com- Canadian series. Okay. Yeah. So you know, it is still in terms of volume and obviously in terms of financial contribution a huge part of our business you know we were the number one porsche dealer by volume new and used combined in north america last year
0: that's staggering
1: and largely uh, you know i mean we sold a lot of new cars but we the strength of our used car business is pretty pretty incredible and i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that just we love we love used Porsches. You know, <laughs> all of us do. Every Everybody in the company, a thousand people or whatever it is now. It's amazing. It's like, you know, we're all kind of living and breathing and bleeding the stuff. Um, and so there's this kind of culture around finding cars and fixing them and, and selling them. And, you know, our cars are never the cheapest on the market. In fact, they're usually priced at pretty high end. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, there there's definitely a market for them and you know uh, I mean, it's, we love to work deal with those people proof is clearly
0: in the product and yeah. in what you've been doing in the, um, the history of the company as well because mm-hmm. uh, success is not something that is um, is foreign to the FAF group and I mean I think with that comes a lot of other very attractive brands that come into the family and so Maybe just give us a bit of an understanding of some of the other manufacturers that FAF also represents.
1: Well, it's interesting. Maybe I'll look at it kind of chronologically, because 64 was Volkswagen, 67 was Porsche, 71 was Audi. Kind of a long gap, and then Toyota got added in uh, 99, and then really kind of in in the 2000s is when the group really started to grow. I Mm -hmm. mean, this is something that's happening in the industry, right? There's a, a lot of consolidation, and... Uh, dealer groups now you know basically you need to be a group in order to make the investments required that the manufacturers want for new facilities and things so um, in addition to all of all of those brands we now have BMW we now have uh, Chrysler Mazda Jeep Dodge Ram I guess those are all separate brands uh, and you know at the high end you um, we are the McLaren distributor for Canada. Uh, we are the Pagani distributor for Canada, and we are also the representative the local representative for Canada for Singer vehicle design. Uh, and you know, constantly pursuing other brands. I've got a list of about thirty, you know, kind of wish list <laughs> items that we uh, that we're chasing, and uh, some of them are uh, are you know big. Volume kind of luxury type brands, and then there's some very boutique stuff that we're, you know, looking to add to the fold as well. Um, it, yeah, I'd love to have. My vision is to have this like one car showroom that's my office, <laughs> that uh, that you know uh, basically is the home for for all of our one off brands. Right? We have, you know, we've delivered one Pagani so far in Canada. We will probably deliver another one this year. So it's kind of a one or two car year. Mm-hmm. Uh, brand mm-hmm. Singer is a one or two car a year uh, you know uh, brand uh, McLaren now is you know there's really significant volume now that the sports series has come out but it's still you know over the course of a year you're looking at somewhere between 150 or 200 cars so it's not um, but
0: that's 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 staggering for for a market the size of Canada
1: Canada is a very uh you know there's this i think perception that canadians are 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 stingy when it comes to cars mm-hmm. and it's true in the mainstream market but you through your own experience also see that you know at the high end of things there's this kind of stealth wealth thing going on right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh the market for really really high end stuff in canada is very healthy um you know, the average transaction price on a McLaren is somewhere between 250 and $300. Wow. Um, and, you know, there are a number of, you know, very wealthy collectors that I've gotten to know through FAF and through some of my other jobs that you would be staggered at the, you know, at the cars that live in Canada. Right, It's, I mean, it's pretty was, crazy.
0: I always wonder, too, that if there... Is there a, a particular advantage uh to car collectors in canada that i mean there is just a period of time where you're absolutely not going to be seeing these vehicles on the road just due to you know environmental circumstances opposed to in the u.s or sorry when i say the u.s i mean california yeah where you know you can have that car out on the road at any point in time and i mean i know there is a certain level of health that is maintained by a vehicle that is driven oil is being circulated Mm -hmm. fluids are being circulated on a regular basis so they're being driven But at the same point, for you know, four to six months of a year, at any given point, in Toronto at least, yeah. you're definitely not driving your historics, your exotics, yeah. and your uh, extremely rare, sought-after uh, vehicles.
1: I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I I would say that uh, being an enthusiast in Canada is w- more difficult. Uh, but that doesn't seem to have stopped people. And yeah. if you look at, uh, you know... Even in in mainstream brands, Pontiac was way more successful in Canada than it was in the U.S. You know, they did they had cars in their lineup, things. You know, I mean, it was a rebadged, uh, it was a, you know like a rebadged Chevy Cobalt Cobalt, but the Pontiac G5 existed here and it didn't exist in the U.S. because mm-hmm. there was this mm-hmm. desire for something a little bit sportier, something <laughs> with a sporty image. Right. You know, Canada, uh, our share of GT3 RS versus the world is super, Mm -hmm. super high uh, relative to our share of Porsche of volume uh, around the world. Canada is an amazingly uh, fertile market for M cars. Uh, I remember when I was... uh, when I was a journalist, you know, even 15 years ago, AMG was one of the strongest markets, uh, was Canada was one of the strongest AMG markets. So there is like kind of this desire at the high end. It's like, oh, I'm spending all this money anyway. I want the best, the fastest. Uh, I love it. Yeah.
0: Um, and now, so in terms of, um, I mean, you've got all this incredible portfolio of, of vehicles, um, one that kind of sits a bit outside of uh your typical mix of uh, vehicles that you normally represent yeah. is one of the roof vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um and it was something that uh, I think is in the group now, maybe one one vehicle, one single unit. Yeah,
1: we 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 have a roof uh, 993 Turbo R for sale ah. right now. It's, it's <laughs> bright red, it's got 600 horsepower, it's got those iconic kind of flat five spoke wheels and at some point i'm told i'm gonna to get to drive it so oh my god yeah <laughs> no yeah you, ha- you, you you have to i mean yeah.
0: i would ask the uh i would ask for the head-to-head versus that roof versus a singer but i feel like it's on un- it's an unfair comparison because there's yeah. such different vehicles from each other and i think that um i mean for me i know that um There are some very unique things about building your own Porsche Mm -hmm. and building it the way that you want, Mm -hmm. which I I love and I respect because there are certain nuances that you want to, I guess, instill in a car that you're building. But Singer and what they've done with their vehicles, um, every time I look at them, it makes me smile. When I saw the vehicle at the Toronto Auto Show this year... Um, as the uh, which i believe was officially the Toronto commission
1: it was the F- the FAF commission actually it was the story yeah. was it was okay interesting it was yeah there I was thought. a toronto commission before that car uh, before we oh, right. had so the it association cream the... colored or yeah like... it was actually geyser gray so the 91150 uh, okay uh, so color. sorry i am confusing those yeah. two then yeah Yeah, so yeah. there there was a toronto commission before we had uh, our arrangement with singer so there's there is actually already one tooling around Toronto that, and and we know the owner pretty well. And, uh, you know, he, he drives his car and he's really into a couple of, you know, he's not just into old Porsches, he's into old Alphas and he's into old. Oh, nice. It's just like, it's really Um, really cool. Total sidebar. When I came to the, uh,
0: cars and coffee at Porsche center Oakville back in the fall, Mm -hmm. I brought my son, Magnus, uh, we saw the singer, which mm-hmm. I believe that one was the Toronto Commission. That's the Toronto Commission, right? 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 right, right. Okay. Yeah. The FAF Commission yes. is the one that was at the Toronto Auto Show. That's correct. The that beautiful uh, navy slash called Albert slash Blue, Royal yeah. Blue. Oh God, it was yeah. gorgeous. Um, uh, total sidebar: a vehicle that was parked kind of off to the side. Yeah. I know it's kind of popular within the Toronto scene, but yeah. it was um, uh, it was a Lancia Delta Integrale. Integrale. Yeah. The and red one. was oh yeah. man I, there's something about that car <laughs> yeah, I don't, it just absolutely. popped in my head when you said this yeah. but what an absolutely stunning vehicle there's something about it I don't know why and I I mean I guess I do know why most enthusiasts drool over that car yeah. but have uh, you ever I've tried sitting in, in, one. in one? I've never been in one oh I've my never God, driven in the one
1: the most awkward kind of seating position but I you know, I still want one I just
0: one. there's just something about its presence yeah. anyways um, uh, okay so I'm gonna move into our next topic, which is one that um, is super interesting to me, um, and it's one that must have been a really interesting adventure for you, yeah. which was the Trans-Siberian Rally. Oh yeah. And so uh, I'm gonna spout off a couple of stats that I'm trying to recall off the top of my head, which was something around along the lines of there were 35 or 36 entrants into this rally, That's correct? 25 of which were porsche kyan s of a particular spec um that had certain modifications but most that were still factory options and then a few you know standard kind of safety prep items on top of it
1: the story with the trans-siberia is actually it's 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 a couple of crazy german guys that started this Uh, and most most of these big rallies and 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 adventures you'll you'll typically find some crazy german guys (laughs) um But uh, the lead quality engineer on the Cayenne uh, was a guy named, uh, his last name is Kern. uh, And George Kern. George Kern? Or Walter Kern? I don't remember. His son is Lars Kern, who's now a test driver uh, for Porsche Motorsport. Mm -hmm. But uh, Mr. Kern was in charge of uh, product quality for the Cayenne. And when they were launching kind of the facelifted version of the first generation Cayenne, he said, you know, Give me, give me a prototype, and I'm going to do this crazy 14-day, 7,500-kilometer rally. And if you 14 know, days, 14 days, God, so you know, this will test the car. Well, he goes and does it, and he wins. And <laughs> Porsche goes, oh well, you know, we got to let's jump all over this because this is actually a way to go, you know sort of give the cayenne a bit of a racing pedigree, which was Mm -hmm. the one thing that it was kind of lacking, right? There was a lot of marketing of kind of the connection to the original 959 when they launched it, but they've never raced a cayenne up until that point. So they basically what they said is they they had twenty, I think it's 20 or 25 cars, and they basically made every Porsche importer around the world buy one of these cars and enter a car. So mm. you will, you know, okay. enter okay uh, a car, a yeah. Canadian car in this in this rally, and you'll represent Porsche. And it, I got a call from uh, from a guy named Bob Carlson who sadly passed away in two thousand and eight, and he was the PR manager for Porsche North America at the time. There was no Porsche Canada, um, and Bob was. The stuff he got away with was incredible. I mean, you know, he was the guy that arranged the Carrera GT test drive. When they launched the 911 Turbo, the 996, you were invited to the Bonneville Salt Flats to basically see how fast you could go. You know, they launched the Cayenne Turbo at Pike's Peak. He somehow managed to talk the local government into closing the road so that a bunch of journalists could drive up it one morning. Oh, wow. Uh, Anyway, so... Bob calls me and says, how would you like to go to Siberia? <laughs> Who gets that call? Uh, and, and I said, sure, Bob. I mean, it's one of your things, so it's, it's going to be fun. And he's like, I'm not going. It doesn't involve sleeping in hotels. Um, and, you know, the strategy for for this rally was that each car would, be, would have a professional driver that was somehow associated with Porsche and a journalist that would be covering it and, you know, disseminating the story in the the local media. Well, somewhere along the line, somebody at Porsche got nervous that the organization of this rally was maybe not the best. And so they pulled the plug on the journalist thing. But I'd already said yes. And a couple of other guys had already said yes, one of whom was Richard Meaden from EVO. Uh, one of whom was, Jeff Zwart was kind of working for Porsche at the time, but, you know, he was also a f- photographer with a big following and mm-hmm. documented. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bob said, you know, if you don't want to go, it's cool. I'm, like, oh, no, no, I'm still going. Um, and so we ended up, you know, doing this rally that started in Red Square in Moscow. Uh, and yeah, it's 14 days, 7,500 kilometers about half of it was on-road and half of it was, was off-road, and you'd do these special stages. Uh, every day there would be some kind of special stage. And some of it was in mud, some of it was like climbing mountains, you had to cross rivers and stuff. It was just really, really cool. And um, the cars were basically k with air suspensions uh that had um you know a roll cage and safety harnesses but basically and stock
0: some, you know, like skid plates to cover oil pan Skin and plates um,
1: and you know big chunky mudder tires right but essentially yeah it, and it, it was a S, and, and the
0: the goal was to make it to mongolia ulan, batar, mongolia. ulan batar yeah right yeah
1: um and we we made it through 13 days. Right. <laughs> right. And,
0: and then for anyone who wants to know or see a really interesting crash. Just Google Trans-Siberia <laughs> crash. Um, so tell us a bit about that because... Uh, Yeah. There's a piece of audio that plays back in my mind every time from when the first moment I was introduced to that clip to now going back and revisiting it over the course of the weekend when I was doing a bit of research for the show, uh, it sticks so heavily in my mind, the post crash audio, yeah. but take us backwards in time to that in terms of what you were up to, the lead up to this, yeah. um, to this crash and what ended up happening.
1: So we'd made it through, th- we'd made it through the, the, the 12 days. Uh, we drowned our car once, uh, had to be towed out of a, of a river, but you know car was still running fine. Uh, there's just a lot of wa- water kind of sloshing around in it. Uh, we had run as high as 4th and as low as, um, yeah, I think, 12th. So we were actually doing okay. My driver mm-hmm. uh, was a guy named Kays Niro, who I'm still friends with. Kays drove the uh, only 961, uh, which was the racing version of the 959. Oh, wow. He drove at Le Mans for the Porsche factory. Uh, and raced 9.35s and won the 12 Hours of Sebring. And so this is an incredibly accomplished guy from Kelowna who would also make a good guest for your podcast. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. You um, keep rocking them up. But uh, anyway, so we're, day 13 starts and we're in the middle of the Gobi Desert. And there's no roads. It's just the desert. And you basically, through your day, you have three or four waypoints that you've got to hit. So mm-hmm. um I've gotten so comfortable with K's that I'm not even looking up anymore. I've got my pace notes. I've got my GPS in front of me. And I'm just saying, like, okay, you're a little bit off. You need to go left. You need to go right. Uh, and I mean,
0: you're quite literally in a desert. For yeah, a we're in the
1: desert. Uh, and, you know, the sun's kind of low on the horizon. And all you can see is, like, there's cars going everywhere. There's dust. And we basically drove off of a ledge, um, you know, that was about 20 feet in the air and it kind of just dropped off very suddenly. Uh, and I, the car rolled somewhere between four and five times kind of end over end. Uh, the V eight engine and the transmission <coughs> detached themselves <laughs> during one of these rolls. Ejected. <laughs> ejected, <laughs> and, and kind of, uh, there's a good story about, uh, the engine and transmission because they actually disappeared. Um, so anyway, we end up you know, crumpled in this heap, and uh, we both get out of the car. We're okay. Uh, I have a really minor cut on my head because the helmets that we were wearing had an intercom system and a cable that kind of went up and, you know, to, for, the, for the headphones, and so it just broke through the skin. So I have a, I have a head that would look like a hero. Okay. I've got like, this you know, big bandage. The, the, there's an ambulance that's following the rally. They, they come and pick us up. Um so the ride to the next town was fourteen hours and that was worse than the crash. What were you riding in? In one of these kind of Soviet era kind of vans that looks like a loaf of bread. You know, those a loaf of bread sitting on four wheels. Mm-hmm. You know, really rugged mm-hmm. kind of off-road uh off road van but where very the seats military esque. Yeah. Seats not really even attached to the floor okay. kind of thing. Guy, you know, stopping every couple of hours to get out and like Bang on something underneath, and but he gets us to where we're going. He has no GPS. He has no nothing. He's just he gets us there, right? Wow. Um, and yeah, so we crash out of the rally uh, pretty spectacularly on the second last day. They get us to to the end point, and you know there's the kind of you know a, end of rally kind of celebrations, and we go home. Well, Kays and I several months later get a get a. a Another call from Bob saying, Well, we'd like you to come down to Rent Sport Reunion. And Rent Sport Reunion is this event that, they, that Porsche does every three years. Um, that essentially, if you've ever been involved with Porsche Motorsport at any time in your life and you're still alive, you're, you're invited to this thing. Uh, and it was at Daytona that year. And so, you know, we go down. And Kay's has a long history with the brand anyway. So, but I'm like, I'm feeling like a little bit of an imposter. Um, but I sort of walk around this thing. and Oh, my God, like all of these race cars and you meet all of these incredible people. And it's actually at that event where uh, Bernd Harling, who was Bob Carlson's boss, uh, sort of takes me aside and he says, you know, we're opening a subsidiary in Canada. You should apply for a job there. <laughs> this was after, you know, we'd balled up this, quarter million dollar rally car in the middle of the desert and, <laughs> and so it was just this really kind of ironic thing so I mm-hmm. you know I go back to Toronto and I'm sort of in love with Porsche anyway and I spent three days staring at old race cars and I call the one guy I know and he says like yeah send us your resume I don't really know what's going on yet but then you know subsequently like six months later uh, I end up um, interviewing with the new CEO, who's now running global sales for Aston Martin. Um, and, you know, I go to Germany for like a one day to, to do an interview with them because they have to sign off on me, and lo and behold, I end up working there despite all of the stuff that had gone before. So
0: I think I, I, I've already cost you a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah, so it's like, well, yeah, you're, you're you. all in now at this point. Right?
1: So. <laughs> And, I, and we actually ended up doing the Trans-Siberia again uh, in 2008.
0: I didn't realize you did it twice. Yeah,
1: yeah. We did it in 2008. We wow. ended up okay. uh, driving one of the 2007 cars and had our transmission fail, I think, on day four or five. Uh, but there's some really good footage of us actually like running a really, really amazing stage, which I'll send you because nobody's seen that video.
0: I would love to. Yeah, I would love to see that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's wild. I mean, so um, so first first go at it, you got to day 12 and a half, 13 out of yeah. 14. Yeah. And then uh, second year that you did it, which was two years later?
1: Uh, no, just uh, it was in 2008. The mm-hmm. next year. Yeah. Um, and you made it to day five? Uh, yeah. Yeah. God, that must have been wild. I mean, it, I, I would mean, do it all over again, including the crash. It was just the, the most amazing thing. I had never been camping before
0: no this. kidding
1: okay and so, so that's, we're that's, like pitching tents we're having to dig holes to shit in like it of was course. a full yeah. on kind of experience so I mean I, so I, cool.
0: I've grown up in kind of the world very familiar with the kind of the camping mm-hmm. definitely roughing it my family's idea of a vacation when I was growing up was going to Algonquin or Killarney and right. spending seven days in the absolute depths of the park and having no amenities around right. whatsoever but for someone that's never been camping, let alone out in the Gobi Desert, yeah, um, in and your, there are windstorms in, in your in in your vehicle. Um, at that point, I mean, that must have been pretty staggering. Like, sorry, I say staggering. That's an overused term that I, I, I constantly pull out. But I mean, mm-hmm. the the idea that you're out there doing that at that point um, for fourteen days straight, what? What are you doing to prepare for being out there?
1: Porsche was really good about the preparation. So they actually flew us to uh, Leipzig three months before this event, where essentially they put on like a boot camp for everybody that was uh, doing this. smart. So not only, like they taught us how to pitch the tent. And the, the tent's like kind of folded into this circular package that slid right in beside the spare tires. We were carrying mm-hmm. two spare tires. But they they taught us some you know sort of basic survival skills, how to use all of the equipment that was packed into the car, how to fix certain things on the car, uh, so they we were all very very well prepared. Uh, That's you know, awesome. How to drive the car in bad conditions. Like they, Leipzig has like a test an off road test track where they've got water crossings, they've got you know. Uh, Skitty rocks to climb up and so they were able to simulate a lot of the situations that we would we would be going through so it, it was sounds, actually amazing it yeah. sounds
0: like very german preparation yeah that's yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's awesome i
0: would love to do that even without oh, having to go amazing. and not having to go yeah. without even going and experiencing the trans-siberian rally uh, I would love to go and do that training on its own. I feel like that would be really interesting. Oh yeah,
1: it was it was such a it, it was such an incredible experience, and the whole the rally itself. I mean, was kind of life changing because especially after you have this crash, you just go like, okay, like we made it back from that. What's well, next? I'm not gonna worry, yeah, so much about whatever,
0: right? Like, does does um. Is the Trans-Siberian still run, or is it's, that no longer? It's not. So the yeah.
1: interesting thing about the 2008 event, uh, and this alludes back to the fact that Torsha was a little bit nervous about the organizing group and how how they were running things, is that, you know, I mean, the, the 2008 event completed, but they had a couple of mishaps along the way. So the helicopter that was carrying the TV crew, fortunately, everybody was okay. The helicopter crashed you know, that was carrying the camera guy and no stuff. No kidding. And so they, they had a couple of, you know, sort of incidents. And the 2009 event was actually supposed to be uh, Moscow to Beijing. Uh, and that ended up getting canceled. And it, it, it hasn't happened since. Not a single stage happened of that no, one. No. Well, so, I mean,
0: there must just be so much. And I, I won't get into it. But I mean, there must just be so much... In terms of the organization, when it comes to crossing so many borders, going oh, across paperwork, pretty sensitive yeah. territories and areas too that yeah. politically, I think
1: are you know in in some cases it was a little a less state. politically charged back then. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, right, right, we, right. but crossing the border into the, into Mongolia took a day hmm. uh, for the rally, you know, to kind of cross. Like it took each car, you know, an hour to kind of get across. They right. interrogated and. You'd have to change your money, and there was like all of this. But <laughs> but they did actually a pretty good job on that. Uh, I mean, what a wild experience yeah. to have been involved in. Um,
0: I'd love to be able to do something like that um, in, my, in my, my lifetime. I feel like, um, you know, Rally, I've obviously become a lot closer to mm-hmm. with my super roots yeah. now um as i had kind of growing up but, you should do target um, newfoundland ah oh, target newfoundland so that was i learned a lot about target newfoundland through mark bovie and the target yeah. truck and it is one of those things that even i mean at the very minimum i want to be able to go and be a spectator mm-hmm. for and uh, it's on my it is on my bucket, bucket, seat, list. bucket list yeah <laughs>